This is our fourth session through the book of Esther, and uh, the title that I have given for our study this evening is A Sleepless Night and a Nightmare in Susa. A Sleepless Night and a Nightmare in Susa. We will look at who had the sleepless night and who had the nightmare. They were two different people, but both happened in Susa. Somebody has described this particular chapter, chapter 6, as the most ironically comic scene in the entire Bible. The most ironically comic scene. Because here were two individuals who were enemies with one another, and now suddenly everything is getting turned upside down. When Haman is working on uh, putting Mordecai on the gallow, we find that it ends with... uh, Haman going up on the gallows rather than Mordecai. And through all this, we will definitely learn this important principle as we have looked at so far, the unseen hand of God working things through to fulfill His purposes in the lives of the Jews and for us as we learn these principles in our own lives this evening. So let's look at the chapter, chapter 6. First of all, we are looking at chapter 6 and chapter 7 this evening. In chapter 6 verses 1 to 11, we find Haman's unexpected reversal of honor. He thought he was the one who was going to be honored, but sad to say, things were turned upside down. It was totally reversed. And it all starts off from verses 1 to 3, where the king has a bout of insomnia. In verse 1 it says, During that night, the king could not sleep, so he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Which night? The same night that... Haman was having his gallows constructed so that Mordecai would be killed. And this was uh, five years uh, after Mordecai has uncovered the plot for the assassination or the killing of King Xerxes. Five years have gone by. Now the situation has happened as we looked at the last chapter that that, uh, Haman has gone to meet with King Xerxes, passed the edict that all the Jews would be killed, but primarily it starts off between him and Mordecai because he is upset when he realizes that he is a Jew, his enemy. If you notice now, so far it was five years that have gone by in these last five chapters, but now it becomes a lot more quicker. It is this day, this night, and uh, situations are soon uh, and are beginning to turn very fast. Sometimes in our lives we may think that God is going very slow in our lives. But soon we will find that things begin to change as well. So this evening as you look into your life, ask yourself, is God moving fast? Is God moving slow? What are you doing about it? But the important thing is, how is your response to what God is doing? The scripture tells us over here, the king could not sleep. Literally, the Hebrew reads, the king's sleep fled away. The king's sleep fled away. And the Greek translation of this verse says, the Lord kept sleep away from the king. The Lord God kept sleep away from the king. Here is King Ahasuerus or Xerxes, who is in charge of 127 provinces, but he cannot even get 10 minutes of sleep. 
Now, if you notice in the Old Testament again, there were individuals, kings especially, who didn't get sleep also. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and as a result, you know, he was sleepless about it. Darius had a dream because he was so troubled and he couldn't sleep. He didn't have a dream, but he was troubled and he couldn't sleep because you know, Daniel has been thrown into the lion's den. But here the Bible doesn't tell us why Ahasuerus or Xerxes did not get any sleep. Maybe Mordecai's gallows were being constructed in Haman's place, so all the noise kept him awake. But definitely it was God who kept him awake to make sure of what was going to happen in the next few minutes. So the Bible says us that he gave an order to bring the book of records. Now this is a very small detail that is mentioned over here. When you don't get sleep, what do you do? You don't get a history book to read, isn't it? But that's what the Lord motivated King Xerxes to do. He asked for his servant to get the book of records. The Hebrew literally reads the book of remembrances. A book that not just kept record, a book that kept record of those individuals who have done certain things for the king and the king has maybe rewarded them for it. So, here you find the king is not having any sleep. The king asks his servant to get one book of the records, you know, of the book of remembrance specifically. Now, the uh, servant goes and gets this book. It could have been any book, but it opens up to this particular page, which tells us the exact story of Mordecai and how he had saved the king from assassination. Was this a coincidence? This is definitely God's unseen hand at work. Here's a king having a sleepless night. He could have asked for music to be played. He could have asked for his concubines to come in. He could have done something else. But he asked for a history book of remembrance. And when he opens that page and reads through, he finds out about Mordecai. Now, we must remember that it is not a very small thing when we don't have sleepless nights. For us, it may be a big thing to say, oh, I can't get sleep at nights. But remember, God can speak to us through that particular situation if we are willing to see His unseen hand. God sometimes would wake you up from sleep so that you can spend time with Him. Maybe God will wake you up from sleep so that you can read His Word. Or maybe you can read a book. God will speak to you through that. So instead of getting frustrated and uh, you know, trying to count sheep, maybe to get sleep or do something else, instead of being frustrated, you and I should be willing to ask God, God, you have woken me up or I'm not getting sleep. What are you trying to tell to me? Should I be praying for some individual? Are you bringing some person up across my mind? Should I be reading something? Should I read your word? And you would be amazed at such times of what God is able to accomplish. Okay. Now in verse 2 we find that it was found written that Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. If you notice here, Mordecai is not referred to as a Jew. 
in other words, people so far do not know anything about it. Because even when and I, he told Esther to go and tell the king about this plot that was there, nobody knew that he was a Jew. So he has kept his Jewishness very silent. And as a result, even in the book of records that is mentioned, you find him only mentioned as Mordecai. But if you notice later on, we'll also find out a reference of how the king addresses him as a Jew. But right now, put this in place, that here's an individual who has kept his faith silent, but God still remembers what he has done. Remember, we learned that life an application, that even though men may forget, God still remembers. And God works out, masterminds the situation so that the king has a sleepless night. He opens that particular book at that particular page so that Mordecai can be rewarded. Now Warren Worsby in his book gives us two quick illustrations of how books can play an important role, how God can use them to teach us specific lessons. Can God direct the books that you pick up and read? Definitely he can. The story is told of uh, in February 1916. A British student bought a book at a used bookstall in a railway station. He had looked at that book and rejected it at least a dozen times before. But that day he purchased it. It was a book by George MacDonald. And the reading of that book eventually led that young man to convert and to be, uh, not to follow Christ. Who was this individual? The person, C.S. Lewis, who became maybe the greatest and most popular apologist of the Christian faith in the mid-20th century. And he wrote to a friend that he had picked up the book by Hazard. In, uh, in other words, and I just picked it up. It was just by chance. But then he says, but I believe God directed his choice because God can even direct what we read in a book. Another individual, you know, sought peace, first in sensual pleasures, then in philosophy, but his life became only more and more miserable. But one day, you know, the neighbor's child was playing a game and she kept saying these words, take it and read it, take it and read it. And that motivated this person to go and read the scriptures. And he read Romans 13, 13 and 14. And that brought this person to know the Lord. And that is St. Augustine who became the Bishop of Hippo. God does use the books that we read. So we must ask ourselves what's the type of books that we read. And God does use sleepless times to speak to us. So don't be frustrated when you don't get sleep. See the unseen hand of God even in those things. Verse 3 tells us, the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Now the, Jew, uh, the historian Herodotus, you know, the Greek historian says, that there was an assassination attempt that was put on Xerxes' brother. And when a man reported the assassination attempt and spared the brother's life, he got to become a governor. So imagine, you become a governor just for saving the king's brother's life. So if you have saved the king's life, definitely you should get something more, or at least even you know, that much or more. So suddenly now you find King Xerxes is wondering, what was given? Nothing was given to him. How come? His conscience is now suddenly beginning to work. 
Because remember, it was part of not just the recognition of what the individual received, but it was also symbolic of the generosity of the king. So it reflected much more on the king that he has not rewarded this person for what he has done for him. So if he is not rewarded, then maybe the next time, who will save the king's life if the king does not reward his people? Now remember, this is not coincidental. The king not getting sleep, the king not get, you know, picking up that book, the king turning that page. It is as if God himself is turning the pages of that book to come to that particular spot. A life application over here. God uses the mundane to bring about the miraculous. God uses the mundane to bring about the miraculous. A mundane thing about not able to sleep brings about the miraculous of Mordecai after so many years being rewarded and through this situation the tide turning. So look to see what God is able to do through the everyday situations of life, the mundane situations of life. See God's unseen hand turning the pages, working things through. Now in verses 4 to 9, we find Haman's presumption about the honor that was to be conferred. He thinks that he is the one who is going to be honored. Verse 4 tells us, So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. It is as if, you know, the king has been trying to get sleepless and sleep, no sleep has been coming. And then suddenly he reads this and he finds that, hey, Mordecai has not been honored at all, rewarded at all. So it's like he jumps out of his bed and says, hey, now who is in this room? Because if you notice, he is a guy who consults people. He doesn't make decisions on his own. He consults people to find out what should be done. So, immediately asks his servants, who is in this court? In other words, what he is asking basically is, which of the counselors is here so that he can counsel me on what should be done for Mordecai? Now, the question would arise, what was uh, Haman doing at uh, the king's court so early in the morning? Now, the Bible doesn't tell us when it was... middle of the night that he came in or whether it was in a early morning that he came in but obviously Mordek and Haman has been there right the first thing in the morning maybe it would have been early early morning because he has been waiting for what he wanted to go and meet the king so that he can pass the sentence so that Mordecai can be killed he has constructed the gallows he wanted to speak to the king about hanging him But what happens, his timing as it were, he arrives a few minutes too late. Why do you mean by too late? Because God is the one who has already worked it out. God is the one who has gone ahead as it were to make sure that it was Haman who was going to be there when the king is asking who is going to guide me and Haman is the one who is used to guide the king in what type of honor that would be given to Mordecai. So God is the one who has worked things out again. Is this a coincidence? Not at all. Haman to be there early in the morning right at that very moment when the king is asking who is in this place 
He is just entering right at that very precise moment. It is not chance. It is not coincidence. This is definitely the Lord's doing. The dictionary meaning of coincidence is a remarkable concurrence of events or circumstance without apparent casual connection. That's how the world will put it across. We do not know how it worked out, but two and two became four. But for a believer, it is recognizing that God is the one who is putting these things together. It's not just different. He is the one who is masterminding all these. In the first five verses of this chapter, we have at least five indications of God's providence. You find in verse 1, the king's insomnia, that he was not able to sleep. That was God's providence. Then you find his choice of entertainment to read a book at that time. Book of records at that time. That was God's providence. The servant's choice of books, the exact book that he brought, that was God's providence. The delay of the king in rewarding Mordecai, he didn't reward him earlier, but now was an opportunity. That was God's providence. And definitely the timely arrival of Haman was God's providence as well. So, it is God who has been looking after in terms of masterminding the events so that his purposes are fulfilled. So, in verse 5 it says, The king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. The king said, Let him come in. Let him come in. Life application over here. There are no coincidences with God. His timing is always perfect. I'm sure in each of our lives we'll be able to look back and look at situations in which God's timing was perfect. It was not too late, not too early, right at the exact time. Even when you're thinking about you know, Jesus coming into this world, the Bible tells us, in, isn't it, in due time, at the right time, Christ died for us. When it comes to God, it is all God's perfect timing. Everything is working according to God's clock. And even when you're thinking about our lives, when you're thinking about the end of this world, when you're thinking about Christ coming back again, His establishing His kingdom here, all this is precisely moving according to His timing. No individual can supersede that. No individual can thwart that. That's the assurance we can have. So in verses 6 to 9, now Haman begins to start dreaming. In verse 6 it says, So Haman came in and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Haman said to himself. He begins to dream. As soon as the king says, you know, I want to honor somebody, immediately he says, Hey, the king has to honor me only. That's all that he is thinking about. He's only thinking about himself. Remember, Haman has just been given a promotion in that sense, second in command as it were. But he's still wanting more. He's not satisfied. And he's thinking, hey, this is what I would want. And if king is going to order me, he tries to put himself in the position and says, this and this and this and this is what I would want. The royal robes, the royal horse, the parade, the loud proclamation, all these things is as it were. He's picturizing this in his mind. And then in verse 7, then Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king desires to honor. Remember, if you notice, he doesn't really 
even address the king like your highness or you know if i found favor in the lord's sight or in the king's sight if it seems good to the king nothing of that no introductions as it were he gets straight to the point it's like he has been thinking picturizing dreaming all these things and then he just opens his mouth and says for the man who the king desires to honor clearly haman is thinking that this is what he is going to get and he is uh, now being happy about it now remember is this not divine providence god's providence now the king has not said anything about mordecai's name whatsoever so far he is only speaking about the one whom he wants to honor but finally who gets all that and you know, haman has been planning it's mordecai who gets it i wonder if the king had said hey look here i had a sleepless night and then i picked up this book and i couldn't uh, see find any place where mordecai who had uh, revealed the plot to assassinate me was rewarded now i want to mordecai and i reward mordecai what do you think i should do <laughs> i wonder if what haman would have said at that particular time but god is the one providence of god the unseen hand of god the king does not mention the name of mordecai he only says i want to honor the person and you find haman coming up with all these suggestions verse 8 says let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn and the horse on which the king has ridden on whose head a royal crown has been placed on whose head a royal crown has been placed remember this is not a crown on uh, uh, mordecai but this is more a crown on the horse's head symbolizing more of a royalty it was more of a, like bearing a royal insignia or a stamp or a horse that the king has ridden one with a royal crest that is placed on its head or the another horse from the king's stable sporting a royal diadem on its head in other words all trying to speak it is not going to be a normal horse it was going to be a separate horse a horse that was used primarily by the king to speak about royalty so he says that is the type of a horse that you should use right from your stable so that everybody would know that he is a special individual it is also said that the persians regarded the royal robe as having magical properties so now haman also wants that he wants that type of an honor he has been elevated to a position now he is saying hey now i would be the king's successor so i would have the king's robe as well remember a person is never satisfied with the things of this world if god's peace does not satisfy him because without god's peace it is ultimately useless vanity of vanities was nine treasures and the at the robe and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble princes let him array the man whom the king desires to honor and let lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor little did haman know that he was the one who was going to carry out all that instructions he thought maybe the next in command will do all that for me he says royal robe royal uh, uh, horse right in the city court so that everybody would see and also so that the person would proclaim that this 
shall be done to the man whom the king desires. Now, what happens? This plan of his backfires totally, isn't it? Haman had planned his finest moments to take place directly in front of Mordecai because Mordecai was sitting at the city gate over there where the city court was. So he thought he will show off to Mordecai how much the king has honored him to put Mordecai in place. But what happens? It is Haman who does all that for Mordecai. Remember, Haman was never satisfied with any of the honor and prestige and power that he had. Why? Because he did not really have God's peace in his heart. In other words, his identity primarily came from what people are going to give to him. If people thought well of him, if people pushed him up on a pedestal, that is where he got his identity from. And as a result, he was never satisfied. There are so many people of this world, isn't it, even today, who are never satisfied, never satisfied. No matter how much they have, they still want more, they still want more. And they want to even maybe climb on top of somebody else to get that. But you and I as believers should know that all these things are fleeting. They are things of the world. It is only God who can give us his ultimate peace in our lives. So in verse 10 it says, Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. Now Mordecai is honored, Haman is humiliated. The king says, do it quickly. Okay? Now, so that, you know, he does not change his mind, so that he does not come up with any other options. And here, if you notice, the king very specifically mentions Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Now, this suggests that the king does seem to know that he was from a Jewish background. But the king does not really know at this stage that the edict that he has passed is against the Jews. Because Haman has not really told him who this nationality of these people are who are against the king. He has kept that hidden. But the king is aware that Mordecai is a Jew. And he says, do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. This would have been definitely a nightmare for him, isn't it? He was having a big dream. Now it has become a nightmare. It would have been the most horrifying event of Haman's life. Remember, to publicly promote Mordecai okay, against this background of the gallows that he has built. People would have come to know that, hey, this gallows has been built for Mordecai. And now Haman, the one who has built these gallows, is taking Mordecai around the city square saying this is how the king would honor somebody who has done so much for the king. <laughs> okay? So here is an individual who has his own plans, but God works things out totally different. Okay? Imagine Haman's face when he discovered that all these honors that he was dreaming about was actually intended for not him but for Mordecai okay now the king also says as you have said so do okay 
the king could have asked somebody else to do that. The king could have asked one of his trusted advisors, one of his eunuchs who was guarding him, an administrative guy. He could have asked him to go and do that for Mordecai. Could it be at this stage the king is aware of what is happening? After the edict has been passed, maybe he has come to know that Mordecai is a Jew. Maybe he's come to know that because Mordecai is a Jew, Esther, another cousin, is also a Jew. Maybe he's aware of it. Maybe he's not aware of it. No, but God is definitely the one who is in control. This definitely shows us the simple principle that pride goes before a fall, isn't it? Verse 11 tells us, So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed or dressed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Now remember, earlier it was Mordecai who was in the city square in sackcloth going around weeping and wailing. Now God has turned that around, that Haman, the one who was plotting his uh, killing, now he dresses him up in royal robes and takes him around in that same place. Now, you remember earlier Esther asked him to, gave him some new clothes so that he could wear, he refused that. But now when Haman, you know, comes along and says, this is what the king has given to you, you know, you have to wear this and go around, you know, and I am the one who is supposed to be doing it. He allows his enemy to do that. Haman's dream day has become his worst nightmare. And it would have definitely be very, very humiliating for Haman to be in that position. The one who was second in command, as it were, now he has to take Mordecai, his arch enemy, People would have known that this is the plot that he has made. People are aware of it because Mordecai has gone on the streets crying out. And now this guy, Haman, who was his enemy, now has to do this for him. Definitely very, very humiliating. But what's the simple principle? Pride goes before a fall. Pride goes before a fall. If in case we think it is my effort, if in case we are living for ourselves, if we think you know, we are somebody, God says, hey, you are nobody. He is our creator. He owns us. He can use us whichever way. And he would definitely put us in place if we push ourselves up. Verses 12 to 14, now you find Haman's advisors are now speaking to him. Now earlier they said, Put the you know, make the gallows, put him there. But now things are going to be different. Verse 12 tells us the responses of both the individuals after this uh, parade that has taken place. Verse 12, Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home, mourning with his head covered. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. How did all this pomp and circumstance impact Mordecai? Did it get to his head? Did he now say, hey, now I am second in command, now I can go into the palace, now I am the boss? No, he just went back straight to his original position at the king's gate. Maybe he recognized that the law had still not been changed. But definitely, maybe through this we recognize his true character. On the other hand, what does Haman do? You know, he immediately, you know, 
rushes home, covers his head, you know, and it's like, you know, I don't want anybody to see this of me. His uh, pride has been shattered. He rushes home thinking that at least he will find some support from his home. Because remember the last time when he went back home and he gave a big description about all that he had and all that, even though all his family members had heard about it maybe plenty of times. When he narrated all that, he, they were the ones who boosted his ego up and says, Hey, yes, if the queen has invited you for the uh, party, go to the banquet and make sure that Mordecai is sent to the gallows. But now, if you notice, things are beginning to change totally. He thought he will get the support, but he doesn't get the support. Now, what you do with the applause that you get will determine who you really are. Warren Worsby puts it across this way, applause doesn't change truly humble people for their values are far deeper. They don't change when people pat you on the back, you did a great job, it doesn't get into their head because their values are far deeper. And God can trust his blessings with the humble because they seek to honor only the Lord. They are not there to honor themselves, they are not there to push themselves up, they are there only to honor the Lord. If Haman was a man with a mirror only looking at himself, Mordecai was a man with a window he could look through to see others. Mordecai during this period has not worked on how what revenge can I take on Haman. In fact, he has remained silent throughout this particular period. The root word for humility literally means to know your place. A humble person knows his place. A proud person does not know his place. Pride is all about glory. Who gets the glory? Humility is all about God's glory. Jonathan Edwards puts it across so clearly when he says, Once the question of glory is settled, everything else is settled. Once the question of glory is settled, then everything else is settled. When you decide who gets the glory, that makes the 99% of your decisions in life. Should I do this or should I do that? Because if your concern is for yourself, your decisions are going to be wrong. But if your concern is, I want God's name to be glorified, then it makes things easier and much more clearer as well. Ask yourself, you know, once you have been promoted, once God's uh, grace has uh, been showered upon you, what is your response? What is your response? Are you still comfortable sitting at the king's gate? Or are you asking, hey, I want my entitlement. Now I'm in this position, I want people to say this to me. Respond to me like this, address me like this. How is your response? That will show forth whether you are a proud person or a humble person. Warren Wiersbe again observes the contrast between Mordecai's reaction and Haman's reaction and he says that this is the basic difference between reputation and character. Reputation is what others think you are, while character is what God knows you are. Reputation is what others think you are. If you are living constantly, I want to have this good reputation, you want to please people then. But character is, no matter what people may say, 
I know God is seeing that. God knows what I am doing and that's what really matters. For Haman, it was his reputation. For Mordecai, his character seems to have been pretty strong at this particular point in time. So in verses 13 and 14, we find the fall of Haman, where he goes to his house. And in verse 13, we find Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh's wife said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Okay. Again, if you notice, he goes back and reports everything that has happened. Okay. Earlier, the same friends, his wife also said, Kill Mordecai. Now they are saying, Mordecai will definitely kill you. Look at the falling that takes place over here. If you notice, Zeresh Sena emphasizes this very clearly in verse 13, where she says, your downfall has happened, you will surely fall. And later on you find in chapter 7 and verse 8, where Haman fell upon the couch, and then in verse 10 again we find that he is hanged, and he falls from the rope on which he is hung. So, Haman's falling has started down. He was the one who thought he can climb up the ladder, but his climb down, his falling is very, very immediate. Now, if you notice, oftentimes you'll find this, slipping down goes down faster, climbing up may take time. So if you're pushing yourself up, pushing yourself up in your own strength, you find that the downfall will definitely be far, far more quicker. Now, if you look at Haman's state over here, his head is between his knees as it were. He's coming and telling his wife and his advisors. And the advisors, instead of boosting his ego, now are telling him, hey, everything is gone for you. Now at that particular stage, was he really sorrowful for what he had done? Was he really sorry for what he had done for uh, Mordecai, the revenge that he wanted to take, the revenge that he wanted to take against his people? Not at all. Life application over here. Grieving accomplishes nothing without repenting. There's no passage over here where Haman says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I have done. I should not have planned this. No question of remorse whatsoever. Yes, he is sorry that he had to do all this to Mordecai, that he was humiliated. He's sorry for that. But that's not repentance. He's not agreeing that what he has done is wrong. Oftentimes in our lives, we must ask ourselves, we may grieve over sin, we may grieve over situations, but unless there's a genuine repentance of forsaking and acknowledging that what we have done is wrong, then only the turnaround happens. There's no turnaround that happens in Haman's life because there was no repentance. Verse 14 tells us, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Haman has no control over the circumstances now. He thought, yes, he'll make the gallows, he'll then go to the king the morning, early hours of the morning, tell the king, this is what I've done, I want you to kill the, this guy upon the gallows. This is what he thinks will happen. But what has happened right in those just 24 hours, things have been changing so quickly. And he finds that he is no longer in control over time. He is no longer in control over any circumstances. Everything is happening so very, very quickly. 
But we also remember from this the life application that God does not abandon his people and he is the one who ultimately reigns over all history. Yes, it may appear as if Haman is the one in charge. It may appear as if sin is the one who is reigning in this world. It may appear as if Satan is in control. But remember, God does not abandon his people. God promised that he would send his son into this world as a sacrifice for our sins. And he did that. God promised that he would send his son into this world not only to die, but so that he can rise again to grant us victory over sin in our lives. He has promised he has done it. He will not abandon his people. He's also promised that he's going to come back again to bring his sinner people to himself. And that's something that we can look forward for, recognizing that he will never abandon his people. Ultimately, he is in charge. He is the one who controls history. Now in chapter 7, we find there is a dead end now for Haman. Now he thought he was in control. Now he's at a spot in which he cannot run away from that. Everything is closing in on him. Verses 1 and 2, we find that as the second banquet that takes place. Verse 1 says, Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther, On the second day also, as they drank their wine at the banquet, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, it shall be done. Now remember here in this particular place, he is addressing her as Queen Esther. What is your petition, Queen Esther? Remember, this banquet would have happened maybe in the afternoon, you know, after all these incidents that have taken place. Early morning, he has gone and met the king. The king has asked him to do this for Mordecai, and he has gone and done that in the city square. He has just come home to speak you know, to his wife and his advisors of what has happened. Immediately, the king's men come over to pick him up to go for the banquet. Things have happened so very, very quickly. So, even though the king has had time, you know, to think over what Esther has been asking, again, he doesn't get upset, he doesn't get, you know, irritated, he's waiting. You know, even though he had not asked for her to come to him, you know, to his bedroom for one month, you know, still, even at this point, it is God who is working things through. Esther has waited. First time, she just said, call for a banquet. Second time again, she says, call for a banquet. She has waited for the right time. Esther had a sensitive ear, a wise heart. She recognized that something was not quite right. If she had mentioned this in the first banquet, then the situation about Mordecai and Haman would not have arisen. So she waited for the right time. She knew when to act and when to wait. And this is something that we must learn. Are we as sensitive as that? Do we know when to listen and do we know when to speak up? Do we know when to remain quiet? Do we know how much to say as well as when to say it? Do we have the wisdom to hold back until the right moment? Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 7 tells us, isn't it, there's a time to keep silent, but there's also a time to speak. And that's a life application. There's a time to keep silent, and there's also a time to speak. 
Earlier we saw about Esther, one who did not speak about her faith. Now she begins to speak. A time to remain silent, but also a time to speak. You find now in verses 3 onwards, Esther exposes the plot of Haman. In verse 3, it says, Then Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition, and my people as my request. Okay. So far, if you notice, she has not yet revealed anything that, you know, she is a Jew. She is only revealing this much to say, it is my life, it is my people. So, the way she is putting it across, just as much as Haman said, hey, there is a certain group of people who are anti-king and we must do something about it. So, she also does it the same way. She says, my life is in danger, which will motivate the king to say, if the queen's life is in danger, I better do something about it. And then she says, my people, so and it says, if the queens and our, peop- and our people are going to be in danger, the king has to do something about it. Now she has to and has, uh, tread very delicately in this situation of how she addresses uh, the issue to the king. Because remember, the king is very much uh, in that edict that he has passed. He has put the signet, his signet ring on it. Even though he was not aware of it, he has unwittingly allowed Haman to issue this edict. So she has to be careful. She cannot say, hey, you are the one who made this edict. You are the one who made this law so that I would be killed. So she has to be very, very careful about it. Look at how she puts it across. Verse 4. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent. For the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the (laughs) king. She picks up these same words, to destroy, to kill, to unhighlight. These were the words that was there in the edict. Now, along with that, she says, (coughs) over here, (coughs) she says, we have been sold. What does she mean when she says we have been sold? She is aware that Haman has now offered to pay the king a large sum of money. And the king is aware of that. So when she is saying we have been sold, she is very much referring to that. And then when she uses these words, destroyed, king, killed and annihilated, she is bringing these same things that you know, the king has written in that edict. Okay? So that the king will slowly get uh, more involved in her favor to protect the queen. And then through that process she would be able to identify Haman as the wicked one. She has to be careful in this so that she doesn't point a finger at the king. She has to point a finger only at Haman. So she is unmasking the villain but in the process she is also unmasking herself and as a result she has to be very very careful. So in the second part when she says no enemy can compensate for this damage to the king. It basically means there is no distress comparable with the damage of the king. If the king's wife is going to be done to death, what's going to happen to the people 
who belong to her and as a result what's the damage that's going to be caused to the king. So she works things around so that she is you know, working it in such a way that the king would now be in a forced in a way or motivated in a way to take a stand and you know, decide what has to be done. Now, so far we have looked at how God has been in control. But we also look at here the human responsibility that is involved. You know, the life application is you know, divine ap- sovereignty and human responsibility work together. They work together. Yes, God is in charge. Yes, God is in control. Yes, God take care of it. You know, it's in all the details. He will take care of it. But there are times when we need to speak. There are times definitely when we need to serve, when you need to help, when we need to do our part. Truth is like two pedals on a bike. Both have to go together. They cannot have two extremes. We cannot say, yes, God is in charge, so he will do it totally. Neither can we say, I am in charge, so I have to do everything. No, there has to be a balance between the two. And the more we recognize God's sovereignty in our lives, the more we will be willing to give ourselves in service and submission so that we can do that which God wants us to do to accomplish his purpose. Now in verse 5 we find, Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would presume to do this? Who is he and where is he who would presume to do this? The king is in shock over here that you know, her life and the life of her people are in danger. Who's the one that is responsible? So it's like suddenly the king has been you know, woken up to decide, hey, somebody is responsible under my nose to kill my king, a queen and her people. How can a person do something like this in front of me? So the phrase literally reads, who filled his heart to do this? In other words, how can a person think such an evil right here in front of me? That is what he is thinking. Fill my his soul. And at this particular point of time, when she knows that the king is now on her side, he is emotionally now in, in, uh, involved with her in terms of her protection. Now at this time, she turns around in verse 6 and says, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. Think for a moment. She waits for the right time. She could have said it as soon as she started the banquet itself to say, Haman has already made these gallows. Haman has already decided to do this. You better do something about it. No. She has to very tactfully present this across. And she uses three words to describe Haman. She says, he is a foe. He is an enemy. And he is a wicked individual. And as soon as Haman hears this, he is terrified. He is terrified. Because now suddenly he realizes what is happening. He recognizes now this has all been a plot in a way to get Haman into this situation and then to get the king on her side and then to declare that to the king that Haman is the one who is responsible for this edict and as a result you know, Haman is now terrified. There's a change that of relationships as it were that has occurred. Now Haman is the one who is the fearful one 
Mordecai did not show any fear in front of uh, Haman when Haman was passing by. He didn't stand up, he didn't bow down. But now Haman is the one who begins to get terrified. <laughs> okay. Not only does Esther reveal Haman, but she is also speaking about how wicked he is. In other words, what he is really saying is, Hey, look here this morning, Mordecai was benefited. Mordecai, the one who had you know, spoken about the plot, you rewarded him. Here is this guy, Haman, who, whom you used to give you know, all that pomp and glory to him, but he is actually a wicked guy. In contrast between Mordecai and Haman, Haman is definitely thoroughly wicked. Okay, Now, Again, remember, Esther has planned this so minutely. Remember, God again is the one in charge. Esther plays her role. Prophet Nathan, if you notice, when he went to David to speak to him about the wrong that he had done with Bathsheba, when he was living casually, and then he narrates this story, and then, you know, David is upset, you know. How can that guy do something like that? He must definitely be punished. Who is that guy? Immediately, you know, Nathan says, Thou art the man. Now here, if you notice, Esther waits for a moment, and that right at that particular moment, she says, This is the guy. Now, what happens at this stage? The king arose from his position. Okay, He arose from that position in anger, verse 7. The king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now, the life application principle for the previous one is that the presence of evil is no indication that God is powerless against its forces. The presence of evil is no indication that God is powerless against its forces. Yes, we are living in a fallen world. Yes, we are living in a world full of sin and evil. But that does not mean that God is not in control. God is very much in charge. God has not abdicated his throne to the evil one. No, God is the one who is in charge. There are some people who will feel that Satan is in control of this world. God cannot do anything about it. No, that's not scriptural. God is the one who is still in control. He is the one. Even though presence of evil is there, God is not powerless. God is still in control. So verses 7 to 8, now the tables are turned. Now Haman begs Esther to save his life. Okay. Think for a moment. Ahasuerus is now so angry that his second in command would do something like this. And as a result, he doesn't even want to stay with Haman in the same room. He gets out of that place. He's so angry. He goes into the garden. He's had a sleepless night. And then this has happened at the end of the day. No night's sleep. No whole day, nothing, and at the end of the day, this is what happens. His own close, trusted associate has planned to do this, okay? Now, verse 8 says, When the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Remember again, providence of God. The time phrase is over here. Verse 8 says, Now when the king returned, he saw Haman falling. King went out, okay. 
Haman goes over to the queen to beg for mercy. It is too late now. He should have repented much earlier. Now it is too late for him. And at that particular moment, when Haman is at her side, the king enters the room. This is definitely something that God does, isn't it? The timing is so very, very important. And that's what we would definitely see in our lives, that God turns the table on the wicked. You don't have to worry and fret. You don't have to be worried, God, what are you, you know, why are you not doing anything about it? Wait for God's timing. God, in His right time, will definitely get you out, will definitely reward you, will definitely, justice will definitely prevail. Verses 9 and 10 now you find, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai. And the king's anger subsided. Finatis hears again, an unknown person, Harbona, comes and tells him, Hey, Haman has actually built a, a gallows in his compound, uh, Haman's compound, to make sure that Mordecai is going to be hanged on that. Think of it. Haman wanted to stay in his house and see Mordecai hanging on that. But what happens? God turns the tables. God turns the tables. And uh, when... Uh, this person, Harbona, speaks to him. He says, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. In other words, Harbona is the one here who, as it was, speaks for God, whom God uses. And he says, hey, look, in comparison with Haman, what he's trying to do to fall at uh, uh, Esther's side, Mordecai was a good guy. He was the one who was, uh, you know, who uh, made sure that the plot did not succeed, made sure that the plot was revealed to you beforehand itself, so that the plotters could be killed or punished. Here, if you notice, the Lord uses somebody unknown to speak good of Mordecai, so that in comparison, the king is able to recognize, hey, comparison to Mordecai, Haman is definitely an evil one. So if Haman has made these gallows in his house, make sure that you hang him on the same gallows. Esther 6 and 7 helps us to see how all events come together for the good of the Jewish people and how God providentially worked to deliver them. Now remember, God is always at work, even on those days when you don't even see or feel that he is there. And God is ultimately will deal with all the Hamans of our life and bring glory to his name through it. What is our responsibility? Till we wait for that day when you're saying, hey, there's this guy Haman in my, in my life. This is what he's doing constantly, trying to you know, persecute me, trying to upset me, trying to do this against me. Remember, God will ultimately deal and bring glory to his name as he deals with those Hamans. But what do we do at this particular time? The song says, trust and obey, for there is no other way. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 32 tells us, God is the one 
who will work everything together for our good. Through all these situations, God is going to fashion us into his likeness and image. Not necessarily that the situation will change, but through that, the good that is spoken of in that verse is, we will be transformed into his likeness and image. Let's look at a couple of application questions. Number one, Look at Haman's response to having to honor Mordecai and compare it with Mordecai's response to the honor. How have you been tempted to respond when someone you didn't like has been forced to eat humble pie? When somebody whom you didn't like, okay, when he was humiliated, how did you respond? Do you crave attention, honor, recognition or reward? Do you long for it? And do you get angry when you are overlooked and somebody else gets it? Do you become jealous or critical of people who succeed? All these things we must ask ourselves practically to find out whether we are like Mordecai or whether we are like Haman. Number two, often pride is not as obvious as what we see in Haman. How do you define pride? How does it show up in your life? Do you tend more toward an attitude of entitlement or thankfulness. Humble people tend to be thankful. Proud people have a sense of entitlement. I deserve this. They must do this for me. That's pride. That's an entitlement. I'm entitled to all these things. Whereas humble people are more thankful to God for what He has done and continues to do. Number three, when have you seen God at work in your everyday life with regard to people you meet and circumstances you face? Can you think of times in your life when God has intervened with his impeccable timing? Think of situations when just at the right time, maybe we're in that closing time, and if God did not answer at that particular time, things would have been in a mess. But God answered at that particular timing, right timing. Think of those situations and give thanks to God for that. Number four, the timing of the honoring of Mordecai in chapter 6 is very interesting. After all, he's mourning distressed and waiting for Queen Esther to plead on behalf of the Jews. Remember, he's in sackcloth and ashes, and now Esther has said, you pray after three days, I will go. And he's sitting down there, wondering what's going to happen, and then suddenly things are changed. So when have you experienced confusion over God's timing on something? We may feel that God has forgotten us, has ignored the things we have done for him or even promoted someone instead of us when we felt more deserving? Have you experienced a situation where you felt like your faithfulness was overlooked? Look at Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10 and find out how this verse can change your perspective. Number 5. Have you ever felt robbed or violated by the injustices of life? Where do you look to find hope for justice? Think for a moment. So many injustice and evil in this world. Do you have hope in the midst of all that? How does the assurance of the defeat and doom of the evil one affect the way you live your life as a Christian day by day? Number six. As you think back over this story and the passages you have examined, what are some things that God speaks to you about faithfully waiting on his perfect timing and plans and not giving in to discouragement? Is there an example of this that you experience personally, that you can record? How will you approach the times of trial about God's working and timing in the future because of these facts? Number seven, it took time for Esther to boldly stand up 
and identify herself as a Jew. Think through your current situation in life. How can you be a better example of Christ, both in words as well as actions? How can you make a difference in the areas of influencing that you have for godliness and to reflect Christ in all that you do? And how can you start doing this even this week? Finally, number eight, how does Esther's strategy to expose the evil threat against her life and the lives of her people encourage you to action in response to the plight of persecuted Christians, both in India and worldwide? What did she do? She called for a fast. She waited, prayed, spoke when the time was ripe. What can we do practically in these areas? Let's bow our heads in prayer together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for these two chapters that you enabled us to go through this evening, showing us so clearly, Lord, your impeccable timing. You're never in a hurry. You're never late as well. Father, we pray that you would help us never to get anxious, never get to get worried when things don't seem to be working, but we would see your unseen hand and be relaxed to know that you are in charge, you are in control, and as a result, you will work out everything for good. We give ourselves into your hands. Help us to apply these truths in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.